Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us through your son, Jesus, through his word, through each other. So, Father, we ask that by your spirit, you would open our eyes to see and receive what you have for us this day. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. It is a joy um, to be here and to see so many familiar faces. Um, yesterday was such an encouraging day. Time with those who were confirmed at the earlier service and then time also with the staff, clergy, and leadership team. I am just so encouraged about what Jesus is doing in you and through you. I also want to thank you for loaning um, Pastor Matt to, to, uh, to me. He is my canon to the ordinary. I'm the ordinary. He's the canon. Um, he helps me out tremendously with things in the diocese, but also um, for Chris Stroop, who uh, is part of one of the co-chairs of our Racial Justice and Reconciliation Task Force, also deeply helpful and a blessing to us. We are in the Easter season, and so we are continuing in the Gospels with looking at the resurrection appearances of Jesus. So we're going to be in John chapter 21, which you heard. If you have your Bibles, you can open to that. But already we know that on the eve of the resurrection, Jesus appeared to the disciples when they were hiding behind locked doors. And he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. He first said, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I send you. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. We know that a week later, Jesus appears to Thomas with the rest of the disciples because he wasn't there. We have in this Easter season the, the stories of Jesus's appearances to his disciples, because there are things that we learn in here that are actually important for us to know, to step into the peace that he proclaimed, and also to step into what it means to be sent as he was sent. Because if you look at the stories following that first night when Jesus said, as a father sent me, I have sent you. We don't actually see the disciples doing much of that being sent, do we? A week later, right, they're still hiding in the upper room. There's no evidence that they have gone out to do uh, any of this being sent by the Father. And here we find them fishing at some point after that week. Now, we need to, um, we need to understand a little bit of the context. Jesus does give this commission, right? As the Father sent me, I am sending you. But after that, he does breathe on them. And in verse 22 of John 20, says, receive the Holy Spirit. He is intentionally drawing on the imagery from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, where the Lord God took the dust of the earth, formed it into a man and breathed into it, and it became a living being. This is that picture that we, from our rebellion in Genesis 3, 4, right, we are dead in our sins. And when we are dead, we can't bring ourselves to life. We need the breath of life breathed into us. This is what you see happening here. It's that picture of the Holy Spirit bringing us to life when we are dead in our sins. So why Paul can say in Romans 8, 9, that you can't believe without also having the Holy Spirit. Because God, the Holy Spirit, applies the work of the cross into our lives. That's what the Holy Spirit does in bringing us to life when we are dead. What you find happening in John 20 is Jesus giving them the gift of faith. Gift of faith in the resurrected, the risen Lord Jesus. And I say gift very intentionally. Um, faith is not something that is up to us to create or try to muster on our own. We don't have that ability. Uh, this is why Paul writes in, in um, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith, 
and this not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. We don't have the ability when we are dead in our sins to stir up faith within us. We can't create it. The faith that we have is actually a gift from God. It is a gift that God gives us to apprehend what he is doing in bringing us to life and that breath coming into us. And so we see that, um, that what you find in John 20 is emblematic of this work of God to bring us to life, to make us new creations. We know it's emblematic because you find that when Thomas sees Jesus and he says, my Lord and my God, he doesn't say it because Jesus breathed on him and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus is giving us a picture of that work of the Holy Spirit to bring us to life, to make us new creations. And in that, he is forming a new creation community. So even in John 21, there are maybe there are only seven disciples listed, but the emphasis is really clear that they are together. So the disciples have been made new. That's that picture you see in, in John chapter 20. But we don't actually see them being empowered to live into what it means to be sent as a father sent to Jesus. In fact, we don't see that for 50 days after the resurrection until the day of Pentecost. And once they are filled with the spirit on the day of Pentecost, you can't contain them. Right? Before that, it's like you can't get them to do it. After that, you can't stop them from doing it. But there is a, there's a lag between this commissioning and this empowering. People will say because of, of Pentecost, right, that the, the spirit empowering them to be witnesses, that that is the birth of the church. And that's a good picture. That's a good image. So if Pentecost is the birth of the church, what you see happening in John chapter 20 is the conception. It's actually good that there's a lag of time between conception and birth, isn't there? Right? There are things to prepare, things that need to happen. And that's what we find in these stories. So there's this lag, this, this break of time between the conception of the church, between the commission being given and being empowered for that work is there to teach us things. It's there to prepare us. And one of the things that we need to learn and one of the things the disciples needed to learn is that our worth and our identity comes from who we are in Jesus, not from what we do for him. We are so quick to assign value to others based on their accomplishments. We do that with people out in the world. They accomplish great things, and, and they have a value, an identity that, that we would revere. But we also can end up doing that in relationships as well, that we assign value based on somebody's accomplishments, based on their usefulness. That is utilitarianism. Utilitarianism steals joy at every time, every juncture. It's, I think it's why sometimes marriages end, because the relationship isn't actually love, it's utilitarian. We're together as long as you do for me the things that I need you to do for me. And once you stop, then I'm done. If we have this view that God is utilitarian God, right, that our value to him depends upon us doing good things for him, being useful to him, it also begins to infiltrate the way we relate to him as well, that actually we take a utilitarian view of God as well. They, they end up going together so that, that, um, that we are with and for God as long as he is useful to me. 
which means as long as he's doing what I want him to do, as long as he's blessing me, things, my life is going the way I want, then I'm there. But if he doesn't do that, then I'm out. This is why this utilitarianism, it actually robs joy at every piece. So this place of, of we do things out of God's delight in us. We don't do things in order to get his delight in us. We don't do things in order to keep his delight in us. To know the Father's delight in us before we do anything useful is absolutely essential. It roots us into the gospel, roots us in to the work that he has done for us. Now, another thing that, that um, waiting does is waiting um, can feel pretty helpless, can't it? When you can't do anything to make the waiting go away, right? You just, you're at the whim of somebody else or something else. Uh, waiting makes us feel helpless. And, and actually what that waiting does is it teaches us dependence. I can't make this move forward. I can't make this right. It actually teaches us that we are helpless and we are not in control. Now, there's a piece of both of those things that we find in today's story. So we're going to now, given that context, we're going to jump into John chapter 21. And first thing I want to say is it actually makes sense that the disciples are in Galilee. Because we see in Mark 14 and Mark 16, Jesus tells them, I will meet you in Galilee. So we have in verse 3, uh, Peter says, I'm going out to fish. It doesn't say why. Was he hungry? I don't know. Uh, they were commercial fishermen. Did they need to make some money? It could be. It doesn't say why they went out to fish, but the thing that I want you to see is what it isn't. This isn't a failure. This is not Peter saying, you know, I was sent as a father sent Jesus, I'm sent, and I don't think I'm going to do that. I'm just going to go fishing instead. I have heard sermons that actually sort of build on that. Right, that, that God gave them his commission and, and they just left that behind and went uh, fishing instead. We know that this was not a failure because Jesus does not correct them for it. He does not rebuke them for it. In fact, what you find is that Jesus actually meets them. He is re he's revealing himself to them as they are about fishing. It is not that that Peter somehow abandoned the call, gave up and went fishing. But actually what he is doing is doing what he knows how to do. And that's actually what our call is. There are times where we're not certain of the way forward. And that can be true as, as, as individuals, it can be true as a church. What do you do in those times? Well, scripture uses the language, you do what your hands find to do. You be faithful in doing the things that God has given you to do that you know how to do and you trust that God will reveal himself to you in that as you are about that. So this, this concept of waiting, it's not a time of inactivity, right? Waiting isn't the time to, it's like, I don't know what to do, and so we go into analysis paralysis, right? There are certainly times where God tells us to be still, to do nothing, uh, but that is different than what we are called to do when we wait. How we wait actually reveals our view of God. So if we think that God is poised, 
ready for us to make a mistake so he can chastise us, then our waiting is going to be pretty inactive because we don't want to do something and mess up and receive God's disappointment. But if we actually understand that we are held by the love of God, that we are defined by his love, then we can actually move forward, do what our hands find to do, because we know his love and his care, that even if what we're doing isn't quite the right thing, he will gently bring a course correction. It's actually better to be moving forward, trusting that God will reveal himself to us, trusting that he will correct us if we're heading the wrong way, than to sit back and do nothing. Uh, there is a physics to this too, right? A, a car in motion is a lot easier to steer than a car that's sitting still. And there's something about moving forward faithfully that enables us, that puts us in the place of being able to receive God revealing himself to us, receive his correction in us. So in verse three, we find that the other disciples said, we'll go with you. And they go out and they fish all night and they catch nothing. Talk about a sense of futility. Talk about maybe feeling like a failure. Again, um, I've heard people say, see, this is proof they weren't doing what Jesus gave them to do. If they were actually fishing for men at this point, they would have actually, things would have gone well. See, they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. That is a very American understanding. But if God calls me to do something, obviously I'm going to be successful in it. Never mind what the Lord says to Isaiah when he is commissioned in Isaiah 6. I am going to empower you to preach. And guess what? Nobody's going to listen. His call to us does not mean we are going to be successful as we see and understand success. But it does mean that he will be at work. So what you find, if, you, if you're honest and you read through the stories of Jesus and the disciples in the Gospels, that they actually never seem to catch fish unless Jesus is helping them do it. You never find them catching fish without Jesus's help and without his intervention. What you find here is actually a living parable of John chapter 15 and verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. If we remain in him, we will bear much fruit. Most Christians, uh, maybe through experience, right, you know this truth that apart from him, I can do nothing. Right? We can do all kinds of things, but the, the sense of something that really is lasting, that makes that kind of, of kingdom ripple effect in the world around us, right? Apart from him, we can do nothing. Most of us know that truth. The problem is many of us don't know the other truth that is in that scripture. And if we remain in him and he remains in us, we will bear much fruit. Many Christians actually live as if even with Jesus, we're not going to do much. What we do isn't very important. We might even live with the sense of, you know, I am not worthy for Jesus to be with me. That's why I'm not going to bear much fruit. Both of those positions are a denial of the gospel, it's a denial of the resurrection work of Jesus and what he has done in making us new. And when we aren't living in the truth of the gospel, we end up living in smaller stories. We don't have the imagination to see how the way that God has made us, the way he has gifted us, 
can actually be part of his kingdom presence in the world around us. And when we don't live in that gospel truth, we aren't living in a dependence upon Jesus. We actually live in a dependence on our abilities or our righteousness. And the reality is both of those are pretty meager. And so we end up being held back and we don't step forward in the way that God calls us to step forward. When we look at um, this story, they, they, they have nothing, right? Apart from him, you can do nothing. And then we have in verse four, Jesus standing on the shore and he calls out to them and the disciples do not recognize him. Now, maybe it's the distance. Right? Maybe it's because he's got the resurrected body. And we do know that, that there's a places of continuity with the resurrected body, with his previous body, but also places of discontinuity. He couldn't walk through locked doors before, right? Maybe they were kept from recognizing him. We actually don't know why they don't recognize him because that is not the point. The point is that Jesus is with them even before they recognize him. Jesus is with us even before we recognize that he is with us. This is, this is the truth that we are to be rooted in. This is why I use the language very specifically. My wife brought this up. And not that Jesus meets us when we do what our hands find to do, because that gives the impression that he was somewhere else and now he comes to meet us. He reveals himself to us, right? Because he is with us. He is the God that is with his beloved children. He is the God who is for his beloved children, that he is the one who is with us and he is for us, even when we don't see it, even when we don't recognize it. Because God being with us, God being for us, isn't dependent upon what we do. It's not dependent on being good enough. It's not dependent on doing good things. It's dependent on Jesus and what he has done for us. He meets us. Uh, he, he, he reveals himself to us. He is with us, even when we don't recognize it. And we have to trust that in those times that he will reveal himself to us when he decides it's right. That's the frustrating part, because it's not when I think he should reveal himself to me, right? But, but when the time is right, he will reveal himself to us. And then Jesus, then he calls out to them and he calls out to them in a way that is pretty odd. Uh, the, the, the way he addresses them. Literally, he says, dear children, dear, dear children. This is not the language you would use for grown men. This is not the language that grown men would expect a stranger on the shore to speak to them. This is, this is the language, the affectionate, um, the affectionate words of a father to their, to their dearly loved child. Now, the Apostle John uses that very specifically in his letters when he's writing to those who are under his care. It's that affection a father has for their children, uh, physical or spiritual, but not actually what you would expect in this situation. But there is something that's actually important in this. Because um, when he calls out to them in that place of, of dear children, what we find in that affection is that there is no sense of disappointment or chastising 
of them. There's no sense of, of, of you've been out all night and you caught nothing. I'm, I'm really disappointed in you. There is no chastisement. Jesus doesn't say, hey, knuckleheads, what are you doing? I told you to fish for men, not for fish. You get over here right now. There is no chastising. There is no sense of disappointment. See, what you find is this, this place of, of affection that is for them, that, that Jesus is for them. And in that, it is not that, um, that his affection is based on their success or on their failure. So this is the place of, of knowing that, that his love for us, his affection for us, it is not placed uh, based on our success or our failure or how good we are or how good we do things. Now, Jesus, when he calls out to them, dear children, he asks a question. It's a rhetorical question. Literally, it says, dear children, you haven't caught anything, have you? And that's the way he's asking the question. Right? He knows the answer. He knows they haven't caught anything. But he asked that question because it's important for them to speak the answer. There are places where we actually need to speak out our fears, our failures, the places where we feel a place of futility, so that we can again give space for the Father's love to be poured into those places. Right, that we can still know that even in those, we are the dear, dear children, that, that his love for us is not affected by our success or our failure. And then we have verse six, the first of three commands in this section. Uh, Jesus, when they say no, he says, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now imagine this, you have been a fisherman your whole life. You know how to fish. You don't catch anything. Imagine how you're feeling. And then some boy, some man on the, on, the, on the shore calls out, listen, throw your net on the other side, on the right side of the boat. Oh, I never thought of that. Jeez, if only we had been fishing on the right side of the boat, we would have caught a lot of fish, right? But they do it. Again, they don't know who Jesus is at this point. This is not so much about their obedience to Jesus. It's about the authority of Jesus. He's the one who speaks and all of creation comes into being. Right? This is speaking about his authority. So he gives this command, throw it on the other side, and they do it. Even though it might not make much sense to them at all. Jesus gives a command, and he also gives a promise that you will find many fish. And, and they actually do. And they have so many fish that they can't haul the net into the boat. Now, when we see this, um, certainly that can be that understanding of that parable, right? Uh, if you remain in me, you will bear much fruit, right? Jesus gave the command and the promise. They did what he said. And then there is this extravagance uh, produced in the answer to that promise. There is an extravagance, uh, an abundance in that. It reminds us of Jesus at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, where at the end of the feast, he makes 120 gallons of the best wine. If you think of the feeding of the 5,000, where they start with, with a few loaves of bread and a few fish, and at the end of that, they gather up 12 basketfuls. So this extravagance and abundance of God. And what we see in that is that John recognizes Jesus 
in the answered promise. John recognizes Jesus actually in the abundance of that answered promise. And John's the one who tells Peter, it's the Lord. Peter, who was the disciple when Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. He had to be told by John, it's the Lord. And maybe that's because there's a little work that happens late in this chapter of, of, of Peter being reinstated. Peter being Peter jumps into the water and swims to Jesus, right? He leaves everybody else to get the boat back to shore. The interesting thing is we have no record of any words between Peter and Jesus here. It's not that since he got there first, he actually had a monopoly and could talk to him first and the others had to wait. There is actually no record in this account of the disciples speaking to Jesus, except for the one word, no, when they didn't know who it was. The focus in this account is actually on Jesus. It's actually on, on his authority and his power and what he is doing. And so the other disciples, they arrive and, and they find that Jesus has a fire going. He's been cooking for them um, fish and bread and, and breakfast has been waiting for them. So again, it's this picture of God's hospitality uh, in, in the sense that, that he has gone ahead of them. He has gone before them just as he goes ahead of us. And in verse 10, he gives the second command. He says, bring some of the fish that you have caught. Why did he give this command? He's already cooking fish for them, right? And actually, it's really clear when you read through that, that he's not taking the fish they caught and cooking that for their meal. Uh, the fish has already been cooked. Uh, why, is he, why is he telling them to go and, and bring that fish? Well, part of it, I think, is is to help them understand, help them to see uh, the abundance of that answer, right? to, to actually understand uh, the extravagance of how many fish were caught. There are people that spend time trying to figure out why there were only 153 or, or that number 153. You can, if you look in certain places, find all kinds of, of interesting theories of what that number 153 means like it's some hidden Bible book. But actually, it's not, the, the number doesn't have some hidden meaning. The number is actually very specific to show the reality of this miracle. It's not a fisherman's tale, right? You should see the fish that I got, right? There, there's a specificity to it that shows the reality of how many fish they had caught. And actually, it's not just that the disciples needed to see the abundance of Jesus's promise fulfilled. What they needed to actually see was the miracle that the net was not broken. There was an abundance of fish that came. There was an abundance that came. And what you find in this is that God enables us to receive the abundance that he has for us without breaking us. You can look at that individual, right? I think this is what Paul is writing about in Ephesians 3 when he says that, that he prays that God will strengthen us by the Spirit in our inner being 
that we might have the fullness of Christ, that we might know the, the height and the breadth and the width and the, and the depth of the love of Christ for us. We'd be filled to all the fullness of Christ. Because if, if God didn't actually hold us together in that, the fullness of God coming into us would destroy us, right? We can't contain that. There's a sense of, of God enables us to receive the abundance he has for us. It's true in the church, right? As, as, as the Lord blesses, as people come to faith and the church grows, sometimes there's a fear of all these people coming. Is that going to break us? No. God enables you to receive the abundance that he gives you. He enables us to receive the abundance that he has for us without it breaking us. So we find in that, that there is a place of, of being encouraged, that there is the the fullness of being able to receive all that he has for us. And then Jesus gives his third command. He says, come and eat some breakfast. So much happens in scripture around meals. It's a place of connection. It's a place of hospitality. It's actually the high point of worship. In the Old Testament, when you would go to worship, you'd go through all the sacrifices and the, the, the ending sacrifice, the climax of that worship service was a fellowship meal with God, which is what this also is based on. It was a place of connection, a place of hospitality, and a place of worship. It shows God's grace. Right? It shows his provision. And certainly it echoes what we see in the feeding of the 5,000, the same pieces of, of bread and fish. But there's something even more than that. Because of our rebellion in Genesis chapter 3, we only get food out of toil and sweat and pain. When God provides a meal in scripture, it is significant. Because it's pointing to his grace. It's pointing to his provision. It's that picture of what was in the beginning and of what will be again in the new creation. This meal that the disciples ate was not won by their pain and sweat and tears. It was won by Jesus. We come to this table, we come to this feast, not through our pain and our sweat and our toil, but through Jesus and his pain and his sweat and his toil on our behalf. That he provides what we could never actually get on our own. So we see that, that not only is it that this meal is provided by Jesus, by his sacrifice, by his pain, by his toil on our behalf, there is an access that is given in that. We have access to this fellowship with God, but what you find is it is so much more than just simply access. Right? Access to God is enough to praise him, but it is so much more than simply access. What you find in here what you actually find again and again in the Gospels is that Jesus is the host and he serves us. The point is made specifically that Jesus is the one that gives him the bread, that he is the one that actually gives him the fish. This speaks to the wonder and the glory that the Lord, the King of Kings, the one who commands us and we obey is actually the one who also serves us. We are not the servants who are called in to prepare the meal and to serve the meal. Jesus is the host, and the picture is we are his honored guests. 
He provides, uh, he serves us, he feeds us. See, this, this picture of this meal together, it's actually the climax of this section, right? Because all the, all the little messages that we have before are, are held together into this piece, into this, this climax, that yes, we know that, that God is with us, even when we don't recognize that he is with us. Yes, we know that he reveals himself to us, and often that revelation of himself is through his abundance and our places of failure and our places of futility. Yes, we know that apart from him, we can do nothing. But with him, remain in him, we will bear much fruit. Yes, we know that his affection for us is actually not based on our success or failure. Yes, we know that, that he is the abundant God, that, that he gives generously, and he enables us to receive what he gives without breaking us. But oh, the wonder and the joy that we see that the one who is Lord of all serves us, that he cares for us, that he loves us, that we have fellowship with him. This actually echoes what we heard this morning in Jeremiah 32, where, where the Lord says, I will not stop doing good for my people. Or right after that, he says that he delights in doing good for his people, which you heard in Psalm 33, that God is faithful, right? His plans stand forever, and that the earth is filled with his unfailing love. So it's a climax of this story. It's also why this is the climax of our worship. Because the idea is that coming into this meal that, that we don't get to by our effort, right? We are pulled into this by the work of Jesus on the cross. He gives us access and not only access, he makes us those who are the, the honored guests. This roots us in the wonder and the glory that the risen Lord Jesus, we see how he loves us. We see how he cares for us. We see then how he serves us. And being rooted into this truth, it gives us courage to love and serve others. Actually, being rooted into this truth gives us an imagination to love and serve others. So yes, absolutely, we need to be empowered by God, the Holy Spirit, to step into what it means to be sent as Jesus was sent. But we also need to be rooted first in his grace. We need to be first rooted in his abundance, in the abundance of his love. We need to be rooted in the truth that the one who commands us is also the one who serves us. And that gives us an imagination and it gives us a courage to love and to serve others. It gives us an imagination and a courage to actually step into being sent as Jesus was sent. You know, in a few minutes, we're going to pray for some who have been in uh, MTI who are heading out to the mission field. Right? And that's what we're praying for, that they'd be rooted in this truth, that the God who commands us is the God who loves us and serves us, that they'd be rooted into the joy and delight of who they are in Jesus, that he loves them, delights in them, not for what they do, but for who they are. And that in that, they can have this imagination and courage to step into this work of mission. And actually that we would see that that gives us a, a, an imagination and a courage to step into mission where we are this day. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you are the one who is with us and you are for us, even when we don't recognize it. That your affection for us is not based on us being useful to you. That you delight in us before we do anything for you. Father, we thank you that you invite us in, that you who made all things, that you are the one who commands us, that you are also the one who serves us. Father, would you root us deeper into the glory of this truth? We would rise in worship and in thankfulness. And in that, that we would have an imagination and a courage to love and serve others.